When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Wait was recorded in Indonesia and produced on the lands of the Darawal, Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples, whose sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This episode contains references to suicide. Listen with care. I want to explain to you about the, how I change. How I change to Batman to Goodman, yeah? But I don't know this is good or not if I explain to you. No need. No need? Just tell me where you got the outfit. You're wearing the most incredible outfit. You've got blue flares and a silver and black shirt and... You look amazing and like you've just walked out of the 70s. Where did you get this? I really wanted you to meet Mehdi because out of everybody that I know here, he's been here the longest. How long has he been in Indonesia? For over nine years now. Okay, so Mehdi doesn't like to buy clothes or shoes and he, he uses donated stuff from church. That's, that's how he found this outfit, this lovely outfit. It's gifted to him. He has this cute character and he always makes people laugh even when he's in really difficult times. Is that you shy? You are tall and I'm shorter. You are tall. I am small. I shame because taller than me. Come on, stop it. Better you walking like that. There's this pastor that is helping Mehdi, so he gave him a room behind of a church, at the back of a church where he lives. I'm Ojgan I'm Nicole Kirby. This is The Wait. A podcast series that uncovers how Australia is pushing its borders out. And brings you into the lives of refugees like me who are caught on the borderline in Indonesia. Every night that I'm sleepless, I'm just looking at the ceilings, it goes back into a circle of thinking, how did I get here? How do I get out of here? It never feels like I'm at home. And how am I supposed to get out of this? How do I survive? This episode, Faith and Survival. This is his sanctuary. Many days come here and just bow down and cry so hard, especially at nights, and just pray for a way, for a hope. This is very garden. Uh, 24 hours is active, 24 hours every day. Worship of God. Yeah. There's always someone here. Singing and playing music. Because activity, I mean, every night you ask me uh, what is my activity. My activity is there uh, every night, 2 a.m. until 4 or 5 a.m. I uh, I come here and worship. Yeah. Interpret. 
Interpret. I will help you. Interpret. Interpret. هیچ فعالیتی که ندارم چون هیچ جا نمیتونم برم به خاطر اینکه پلیس اینجا I have this fear of getting arrested at all times and even my pastor that is helping me stay here asked me not to go out of the house as much as possible so that I'm not known by the neighbors around we can often get reported by our neighbors that there's foreigners living here so uh, from this room that we are now in until the church is about 200 meters and I can only go there and come back. If it gets really necessary, then I might go to the little grocery store to do my shopping and come back. I totally live like a prisoner. What can a prisoner do? So what I do is I read books, I read the Bible a lot, and I pray a lot, and I do some simple exercises. How did Mehdi end up under this kind of house arrest? Mehdi's refugee claim and appeals were rejected back in 2013. So he doesn't have a refugee status here, and that means he has no right to even stay here. All the other refugees and asylum seekers are hoping for resettlement. For Mehdi, it's a bit different because he doesn't have a status. It means he doesn't have any hope for resettlement. It's just not on the cards for him at all. After a while that it got really difficult, Mehdi's daughter and wife left him and went back home. But for Mehdi himself, he really can't return because he believes that if he goes back, he will definitely be killed. Does that mean Mehdi's stuck in Indonesia forever? Yes. The thing is with resettlement, we are all being told that it's really unlikely for all of us to get resettled. Uh, so whether our claims are rejected or not, we're all looking at a very, very long future here in Indonesia. We are all finding ourselves in a similar situation like Mehdi's. And for him, the way of survival, faith is the only light at the end of the tunnel. Oh. Mehdi led us into the church garden he spends most of his time at. For prey, a very big, uh, small room for prey. How do you describe that? Like it's a... Like a stairs shape kind of thing. So there's a hill with these cells, you'd almost call them tiny cells, cut into the side of the hill. And you, you, you sit there for hours, Mehdi, days. Maximum two days or maybe one day. I remember when your wife just left, you were telling me that for two days you spent your time in one yeah. of those prayer rooms and yeah, did not yeah. go out at all and you were yeah. thinking about suicide and all that then yeah 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 please yeah and then you receive More, peace yeah. while praying and uh, i cannot sleep and couldn't sleep every night man a lot of times i keep having feelings of revenge from others Because I feel like I'm stuck in a cage and nobody is hearing me. I understand the forgiveness. Uh, uh, so when I come here, uh, although it's really difficult for me to forgive, I can get the feelings of forgiveness. And I feel like I love everybody, even the, my enemies. Even towards my wife's, my ex-wife's boyfriend, I don't have any hatred when I'm here. You're battling your demons here. Yeah. Like a box ring. 
It's like boxing for him. <laughs> yeah, sometimes Shaitan uh, hit me and broken my three times broken damagamushekunde. <laughs> sometimes Satan hits you and breaks your nose. Yeah, you're saying. Sometimes <laughs> But I keep battling this, the demons here. I'm already bitten by a ton of mosquitoes right now. <laughs> How do you come here and be spiritual? I don't understand. <laughs> نمیدونم اون شنونده ای که صدای منو میشنوه شاید براش جالب باشه شاید هم مسخره باشه ولی با توجه به ایمانی که دارم چهار سال پیش It might be really funny for the listeners to hear me talking about my faith too much but this is all I have I believe that one day I will get out of here. I don't know how, but it's just my fate that keeps me going. And thinking that there will be a day that I will get out of here, it's just not the time now. I think we were both feeling a lot of things when we left Mehdi that day. I have known him for five years now. I don't see him that often, but we are in touch. Every time I see him and he talks about his dreams and how he spent his days and talks about these things, it feels for me like he's barely living in this world. He's just out of it because he lost some of the most valuable things in his life, like his daughter, his wife. He's living in his dreams. Yeah, he spent a lot of time talking about his dreams, right? Yeah. As if they were... the most substantial part of his life. As if they were going to be real. Uh-huh. The day after we met him, I got a message from Mehdi saying that we'd met him on his birthday, but at the time he hadn't remembered. And he wrote to me, someday I'll forget my name. The fact is, I do nothing but wait. I'm just waiting for a miracle. It's really weird and difficult at the same time to see people around me just breaking apart like that because, you know, before they used to be really confident, they all had their own jobs, they had their own businesses, their way of living, but now they lost all of that. So each of them is trying to find their own scape. Like for Mehdi, it's his dreams and his spiritual scape that he's doing. For my father, who is the closest to me, is his art. It's just pencils everywhere, charcoal everywhere, black dust everywhere. He's just kind of sinking in all these papers and drawings and things around him. He's just amusing himself like that. I mean, that sounds kind of like a beautiful way of coping as well, right? Well, I don't know how to feel about it, really. When I see him like that and when I remember how he was before, it's it's painful because he's he's not even similar to the person he was before. I feel like I don't know this person anymore because he's not himself. In what way? How's that? Now that he finds himself in this situation, he kind of feels like we don't care for him. Of course, it's not like that, but just that's how he feels. And I've, I've been seeing a pattern in the refugee community, especially among men, that once they lose their job, they kind of lose their, their self-identity and they, they kind of lose themselves. Once all of these men were providing for their families, they were in control of everything, but now they lost that control. So it's, it's only normal that they kind of lose themselves too.
So what's your source of strength in all of this? Sometimes I feel like I'm actually not holding it together at all. But then I look at people around me, especially my mom. Everybody in the community loves her. Everybody calls her auntie. Some people call her mom. This woman does not sit down. She's always constantly doing something. And when she has nothing to do, she's like, oh, I'm getting sick. I feel like I'm getting sick. I should be doing something. I'm like, mom, can you just chill for like two hours? She really does not take rests. She sacrificed absolutely everything for us. When I see how hard she's trying to be strong, how hard she's trying to be a good role model for us and to give us resilience, especially to me, I get up again and I try to do what she's doing, trying to help others and get strength that way. We all have different ways of coping. It's actually nicer to do it outside. But you're right, they're starting the prayer. Yeah. We can try inside. What do you want to hear? It's um, it's, yeah, it, it's difficult. It's difficult. It's very difficult. What is the difficulty? Everything is difficult. I don't have a nationality. This is difficult. I don't have a future. This is difficult. I don't have the right to get married. This is difficult. I, even if I get married, in Indonesian law, that's illegal because they're it's not, not going to give me... Yes, it's not registered. They're not, they're, they're not going to give me a paper for that. If I decided to have a child, this child will not have a birth certificate. It's like he's not even exist in this world. Yeah. So I don't have anything. I lost my past. I don't have a present. And maybe I don't have a future. That's what you want to hear? Yes, that's it's bad, but... What I'm supposed to do is if I decided to think of ease the of all this stuff every single day, I will shoot myself right now. I have to learn how to survive. And I believe in Jesus and I believe Jesus will never ever leave me. We have a disagree about beliefs, <laughs> but for me, he's my rock. Elena's a good match for you, Mojgan. You're both full of sass and you both accuse each other of being workaholics. I don't think we are a good match because we argue all the time. How can that be a good match? (laughs) (laughs) Equal amounts of attitude. The first time I saw her, she was talking too much. And she was like... What is wrong? I was giving a report about my work. That was too much talking. It wasn't a report. It was completely too much talking. And my mind was like, What is wrong with her? Uh, Hi, call me Elena. I'm 37 years old. I still look young. I have good genes. I'm originally from Sudan. And I'm actually a dentist. And I came here as a refugee. And one month after I came to Indonesia. I was a teacher assistant and after one month I became one of the managers. All of a sudden we saw this girl in meetings as advocacy manager. Like she's a newcomer. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> uh, yeah. She took over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Since Elena has been here in Indonesia, she really has devoted her life to the education of refugee kids here. She's been volunteering with the learning center right from the start. And she's setting up one now for refugee kids. I told her not to. 
by the way. <laughs> and I bet she didn't listen to you for a second. She doesn't. It's a really big challenge to start a learning center. This is the lower primary class. This is Miss Aryan class. That one we met. So, so oh, cute little met. class, tiny, tiny chairs. Yeah, it's tiny. Yeah, the lower primary, they are really tiny chairs from <laughs> six to nine. I will be honest, I'm worried about the children of refugees, all the teenage, because we can consider them as a lost generations. They are not allowed to go to school here, and if they go to school, they don't get a certificate. And either we like it or not, without certificate, you're not going anywhere. And they are staying here for a long time, five, six, seven years. Some of them will never, ever get resettlement. And it's not just in Indonesia. It's refugees and asylum seekers all over the world. These are lost generations. What she's talking about is something that I see around me all the time, every day. As an example, I see my brother. He grown up here in Indonesia without any education. I'm really seeing him getting into trouble and, you know, not picking up skills, not learning anything, wasting his days away just because he can't get an education. I feel like I see you worrying about him all the time. In the last episode, I went to Makassar in Sulawesi without you and I visited shelters. I met all these kids there. They've been living in shelters for years and if they're lucky, they only get a couple of hours of class a week. When I saw them, they were desperate to talk. I want to introduce myself. I'm Umid Ahmadi and I'm from Afghanistan and I want to talk about my life in Makassar. I am Marzia Sufi and I'm 16 years old. When I was born, I was uh, born as a child of refugee. I grew up as a refugee and I don't think I have a country because I haven't seen Afghanistan with my eyes. I haven't even been there in one second. I just saw Afghanistan in uh, Google. I'm Sarah, I'm 12 years old. I was born in Iran as an immigrant and I was born as an immigrant, I I just grew as an immigrant. I'm 11 years old and I'm here for six years. And Indonesian people, kids, they're calling me immigrant, immigrant. I, I don't like them to call me. I just like them to call me my name and my real name is Fredun. So I'd like them to call me Fredun. I just want them to be my friends. People call us illegal. It's hard for us to be illegal. Everyone wants to be legal and have their own rights, choose how to live. I become in Indonesia in December. Yes, December 20, uh, 2014. Yeah. So after July 2014, so it means that Australia won't resettle you. Yes, and um, we want to just come out of this kind of situation. I don't think there should be a rule like before July and after July. And I don't have any schools in here. There are many other children who are not going to school, who are not studying, who are just staying in their in their room. They just eat, sleep, nothing much. I can communicate with my family, I mean relatives that are living in Afghanistan, I don't know where are they now, they are alive or not. That has so much pain for me because I really loved my, I really want to see how are they, how are they fleeing now, how are they are alive or not. 
families, especially children who are um, suffering uh, from depression, anxiety. Our countrymen have suicide themselves because of... Uh, <laughs> they were so worried and they didn't know what to do, so they, they just suicide themselves. And it's really hard for us to watch them like this. I have spent all my childhood in, in here. I can't, I don't really know how I have changed. Like, I can't imagine how I have changed. Refugee is a normal word for me right now because from the day that I was born, they called me an Afghan refugee. But it's okay, it doesn't matter. What matters is this, that I should think about my future. It will be very difficult to start to educate them after another five years or another ten years. So we need to solve the problem now. Because the more we postpone solving the problem, the more it will be complicated in the future. We don't want to lose these generations. Because we know if we lose this generation, what will happen in our future? That's very, it's very dangerous. Indonesia has ratified the Convention of the Right of Children, so refugee kids should be allowed to attend school in Indonesia. But in practice, it rarely happens. It's usually like that schools don't accept them, or even if they do, these kids can't really keep up with the studying. They don't understand the language and they have trouble with it. So usually they drop out. And this is why refugees have set up their own learning centers, and there are about 11 of them in and outside of Jakarta. It's kind of amazing that they were able to set these centres up when refugees have so few rights in Indonesia. Well, yeah, it's a huge achievement. The first refugee learning centre was set up in Cisarua. That's this hillside area about 100 kilometres outside Jakarta. And that area has become a centre for refugees, especially the ones who don't have support from IOM. Several thousand mostly Hazaras live there. Sometimes when you're walking around, it feels more like the Middle East than Indonesia. I took you to visit the Hope Learning Centre. And when we were there, there were dozens of kids and teenagers in their sports clothes. They were either on the volleyball court or lingering around the sidelines checking each other out. The judge is there. Announcing their scores. The coach looks really intense, but the girls look really relaxed. Yeah, <laughs> he's taking it way too seriously. <laughs> the match was starting to heat up, like literally it was so sweaty in the sun. So we snuck inside. Hi. 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 What is that? My name is Abdullah Sarvari. I'm 20 years old and I'm from Afghanistan. I'm one of the founders of Refugee Learning Center, which was established in September 2015. Abdullah is this skinny, bookish guy who is really nerdy looking, but has the sweetest smile on his face all the time. He's really, really kind and sweet. I love him. He's so super sweet. Why am I just saying sweet all over and over again? Because I really love him. <laughs> <laughs> It's the only way to describe him. He really cares about the community. 
at the time, there were not many opportunities and chances for refugees to be involved in. Refugees were getting tired of waiting for someone to come and help them. So we finally decided to sit together and come up with a solution. And we just had meetings at a public park. In the end, we decided that uh, seeking education is a human right. It's not a crime and uh, nobody can give us a penalty for seeking education and for trying to provide education for our own siblings and children. They had a few refugees who could teach and manage a learning center. But unfortunately, I didn't have any skills or talents to contribute to this center. I was 15. You're a baby. <laughs> Compared to others, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because all of my other colleagues, they were above the age of 35, 40. <laughs> so compared to them, oh yeah, I was very young. Yeah. When it came to me, I, they couldn't come up with a duty or responsibility to, to assign to me. After the first two weeks, I decided to just come up with a, with a responsibility of my own, which was to just go class to class and inform the teachers that their period is over. Back then, we didn't have a lot of facilities and we didn't have like a ring or a bell. So it basically acted as the human <laughs> school bell. I was very inexperienced, I was very naive, I didn't have a lot to say. And there was a point where they didn't feel like I was very um, helpful at the learning center. Uh, slowly I was uh, selected as the communications officer, and then in the end I was elected as the manager slash principal. Hello! <laughs> Thank you. In 2015, for uh, most refugees, it was around two and a half years to three years from the, the, the day you arrive until the day you get resettled. Now we are hearing that it could be 10, 15 or even more for some refugees and some of them might never get resettled which is terrifying news for most of the refugees. So we just wanted to, to give them a normal life as much as possible. Because of especially immigration rates back in 2014 and 15, so people was really scared. People didn't know that they can actually get out of their homes and be active and do something. But then slowly after they started releasing people from detention and moving them into community housings, and this recently with the closing the detentions policy, it's been much easier for us to go around and communicate with others because we're not scared of necessarily getting detained. The learning centers are like community hubs where people can gather together, can learn something and have a sense of community. Even adults can have classes alongside the kids. How do refugees manage to keep these learning centers running? There are so many things that we are not allowed to do in Indonesia, but then our Indonesian friends help us with some of the stuff, like renting out a space to have a learning center at. The rest of it really, we just survive on donations. There are long waiting lists of kids trying to get into these learning centers and even when they get in, they can only have a couple of classes per day. And some of the kids miss out altogether because there is just not enough space at the learning center for everyone. I have four siblings, two brothers and two sisters. I have an older brother with autism. 
because he has special needs and he has some learning difficulties, it is extremely, extremely hard for him to find something to do. And he just comes home sometimes frustrated, shouting and screaming and saying things like, I'm not different, but they they, they think I'm different and they make fun of me. And we've, we've been trying our best to not make him, to give him this feeling that he is different from other people. But the thing is that in the community, providing education for the for the healthy uh, children, you know, it's it's really difficult. Mojgan knows, you know, providing a safe haven for for refugees with um, special needs, it's on a whole new level. Uh, I'm not giving up, and I'm not saying that's impossible, but uh, it's very difficult. Of course, every, everybody deals with these problems differently. Some people try to be more resilient, but if this affects you negatively, it's not your fault. My older sister, she used to be the most active member of our family. She tried her best for the first three years to do so much to help the people around her to do what she can in this situation. But unfortunately, all the negativity going around her life and the uncertainty of not having a future finally caught up to her. And uh, in 2017, she was diagnosed with schizophrenia. She was coming up with these scenarios in her own head. It was all, you know, revolving around being a refugee, how to get out of Indonesia, and uh, sending an email to Trump to help her. The, 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 the thoughts didn't make sense. But all of them were about women rights and refugee rights and, you know, getting resettlement. She went through this for a very long time. It was one of the, the most difficult and worst times of my life. As I tried to help her more, she improved. Uh, and you did an amazing job. I saw how you advocated so hard for your sister. If you don't have someone to speak for you, to fight for you, then you really get nothing. And you will just go down and down until, you know, horrible things happen to you. I had to communicate her problem to UNICR. What I heard most of them from the case officers was that we have a hard time believing you and that we <laughs> feel like you're putting on a show just to get resettlement. But at the same time, I don't blame them because other people have been doing that and have been doing that before me. I, I understand that. But just to hear that from my only source of hope, which is UNICR, was very, very, very difficult and very disappointing and very hopeless to hear. You're just, you're just always looking for someone to give you some encouraging words and to tell you that I'm here, you know, just don't worry about it. I'm here. I'm, I will do what I can to help you. Right now, the only people getting resettled through the regular UNHCR channels are people who meet this vulnerability criteria, right? Yeah, and the thing is, it's not very clear on what makes you vulnerable. Is it your financial situation? Or is it like your mental or psychological state? What, what makes you vulnerable exactly? Making people claw their way, you know, make them claw their way out of this. They're like, they feel like in a hole and they have to do everything that's possible to yeah, to get out. It's such a judgmental system to see that people are in this competition just because the system is so judgmental. I wish the system could be fixed. I feel like I was going crazy because so much was going on in my life. My sister, listening to her problems, you know, uh, helping my mom so doesn't she, she doesn't get affected by all of this. Uh, my siblings had to take care of them as well. And then I was also taking care of my autistic brother. And it was just so much. And I was just... I was feeling that I'm losing it. 
in Iran, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, my family, we've been uh, through a lot. And I lost my dad a few years ago. So uh, uh, when I was 15 or 16, I was very bitter and I was uh, feeling I didn't deserve uh, all of these negative things happening in my life. But um, as time went on, and I went through more hardships and I met more inspiring people, uh, such as Mojgan and other people. I just realized that these difficulties just uh, make you a better person. They're not something to be sad about. They just give you something to strive for and to work hard for. So I feel less than a human. I don't feel normal anymore. Over the years that I've spent here, I started to see that we can't really rely on UNHCR or other organizations for what we needed, whether it was resettlement or anything else. So I started getting involved in the community. I started learning skills, learning legal aid skills to be able to help refugees. I went to interpretation trainings to also be able to help in some ways. And after all, I started my own NGO. I first met you at the launch of your NGO, actually, and I still have a really clear image of that day. It was in this North Jakartan Chinese restaurant. There was all of these kind of professionals and refugee communities gathered around. You were looking very posh, wearing a white dress and these matching heels, and you got up and made a speech that just blew everybody out of the water. <laughs> and the other things are like, some people are saying real refugees don't live in apartments. I'm like, what? Is there a real state refugee? So what does RAIC do? We rely on over 100 volunteers to do our work. Most of us are volunteers from the refugee community and some of the professionals are from the Indonesian community. RAIC is mostly focused on sharing information, especially in the legal aid area. But then as we saw the need in the community, we started creating projects to respond to the needs of the community, especially their basic needs like hygiene kits, food programs. We decided to provide dental care clinics for refugees and also eye clinics because nobody else is really checking people's eyes for free. We finally had our first dental care program, which went amazing. You sent me this audio diary at the time. There was a team of dentists that uh, flew from Surabaya, which is another city in Indonesia, and we treated 52 refugees, fillings, extractions, and scalings. And I prepared evaluation questionnaires for all the patients to fill out after their treatments. And everybody was happy. Like, looking at those comments, it just makes my heart happy. And I was crying reading them. I mean, we care about our community and it's really valuable for them that another refugee is trying so hard to do it and I feel really appreciated. When you do these clinics, Mojgan, you're looking directly at the need in your community and that need is vast. How do you handle that? I do feel overwhelmed by it, like waking up to messages and calls every morning, people requesting more and more and seeing how big, how massive the need is and we obviously can't respond to all of it. So I guess that's the downside. But RAC is the thing that gets me out of the bed every day. Do you want to take a photo from? Maybe the view is good, but... Mm.
After we'd met Maddie and Elena, I was really curious about your relationship to faith. So back at your apartment in Jakarta, we recorded this conversation. In Iran, I felt so much under pressure of religion because religion is mixed into every aspect of Iranians' lives. Like you have to wear things a certain way and you have to behave a certain way. You can't listen to music outside. I found it really too conservative and limiting. I was just not a religious person. I never cared about it because I was having a good life. It was fine and I was young. So when I came to Indonesia, our whole life was changed completely. And we were all of a sudden stranded in a place where it was just me and my T-shirt and a pair of shorts after the detention center. So what could I hang on to? So I started going to Bible study classes and going to church constantly. For two years straight, I was leaning so much on faith because that was the only thing that was making me feel better. A few years later, when I started interpreting in legal aid sessions with refugees and heard all their stories and all the horrible, horrible experiences that they had, there have been people describing their father being beheaded in front of them. I started questioning everything. The thing that struck me the hardest was meeting refugee families with children who were victims of bombings in Afghanistan, children who have been completely healthy and then all of a sudden by one explosion they have been fully paralyzed. And the worst of all is that they are stuck in this limbo, in this situation. No support, no medical care, no nothing. Yeah, I remember a couple of years ago going to a family that your NGO, RAIC, was trying to support and seeing one of those kids who'd been hit in a bomb blast um, in Afghanistan and he was completely paralysed and I think he had an intellectual, like a brain injury as well. In a tiny, tiny place, he couldn't move, he couldn't get up. He was wearing diapers and it was a struggle for the family to get diapers because they're expensive and to change them because it's physically demanding and that was a really hard scene to see. That kid was the reason I lost my faith. When I saw him in that state and heard the story that he was one of the top students but now he can't talk, he can't eat solid food and he's screaming all day long and he has seizures like twice or three times a day, even with medication. And those medicines are so expensive that it's hard for him to provide them. And that I was something that I could not accept. If there is something in this universe, if there is a God, then that God should have control over something like this. Like these children are innocent. Seeing those things, I couldn't pray any longer. I couldn't find peace anymore. And I was kind of in in an argument with God because I thought it's a lie before I had something to hang on to but now I don't have that instead of that I have this frustration there's nothing else it's just me and I have to fight let's see how smart you are Bella Late. where is it? She can't find it. There is something else that's pulling you through as well, right, Mushkan? Yeah, it's my little fairy friend, Bella. She's a little bundle of white fluffy joy. Definitely. She's attached to me all the time, all day, every day. <laughs> when I work, when I sleep, when I go to the bathroom, <laughs> at all situations. <laughs> I'll come back soon. Let's go. 
I got Bella two and a half years ago when I was really suffering with my mental health. I had never touched a dog before. I was scared of dogs, so... (laughs) Well, to me, she just looks like a yappy little thing, but she seems to bring you a lot of joy. (laughs) Getting Bella was the best decision I could have ever made in my life. Even if I'm crying, she, she makes me laugh because she's that cute. In some ways, she's similar to me. Her personality is very similar with myself. In what way? She requires a lot of attention, like I do. (laughs) She's a spoiled little princess. (laughs) Not smart. Bella not smart enough, yeah? Bella is not genius? No. Or Bella is genius? She's not. And there's another piece of good news. Since we recorded that interview with Abdullah, he and his family have been resettled to Canada, some of the very few to get resettled on vulnerability grounds. This is Abdullah from Vancouver, Canada. Canada is a beautiful country, so I definitely feel very, very lucky and very fortunate to be here. You've been listening to The Wait. I'm Ojgan Muarafizadeh. I'm Nicole Kirby. Next episode, our season finale, we look to the future. This is Indonesian flag. We respect it. Mm. You have the Indonesian flag um, pasted to your wall, so... When I see this flag, it's, it's the place that I feel at peace. Until I was born, I never know what the kind of peace. I think the bomb car killing the people, the life is like that. But when I arrive in Indonesia, I realise this is the real peace. The Wait was written and produced by Nicole Kirby and co-hosted by me, Moshgan Marafizadeh. Michael Green is the co-writer and supervising producer. Sound design and mixing by Beck Fari. The Wait was produced in conjunction with The Guardian and first aired on their Full Story News podcast with editorial support from Miles Martignoni at The Guardian Australia. Support for this project was provided by the Walkley Public Fund and the Judith Nielsen Institute Freelance Grant for Asian Journalism. A big thank you to everyone who shared their story for this series. And thanks also to Tesserex, Jem Rommel, Trish Cameron, Andre Dow, Patrick Tumeau and Ben Doherty. Theme music by Emma Davis. Thanks for listening to this series. If you liked this episode, leave us a rating or review. There are also photos, videos and more information on our website, theweightpodcast.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.